If you turn your Bibles to Psalm 45, that's where we will be in the Word of God this morning. Psalm 45. It has been said that there are three major events in the human life, events that memorialize life in fact, birth, weddings, and funerals. And the Holy Spirit in the Scriptures often captures marriage. Marriage to describe a covenant of salvation in which God has stepped down the time and space and the person of His Son to unite sinners with Jesus Christ to gain His righteousness, His life, His death, His resurrection, His exaltation. It's described in terms of a marriage covenant. You see God dealing with Israel In the Old Testament, Hosea, particularly Ezekiel as well, is a marriage covenant in which Israel broke the marriage covenant, and yet God promises a new covenant, a salvation covenant, in which He will save His people. The coming kingdom, promise of restoration, a new heavens and new earth, is also described in terms of a marriage. We see Christ in many of His parables focuses our attention upon marriage banquets and being invited to a great marriage and the celebration of the king, the son. Well, in any culture you turn to, uh, marriage is often raised up in honor. It's been sad as I was looking even this week that U.S. couples spend $24,066, not to mention a honeymoon or engagement ring, on a wedding. And that runs a gamut from 18000 to somewhere in the mid-30s. The royal wedding that everyone drew their attention to a number of months ago is said to have spent $60 million. Amazing. I was uh, recounting that for my family this week and going, ah, I think we're looking at the backyard, Kaylin. <laughs> oh, I only say that because she's been talking about it recently, so I, I want to be careful at the same time. It is a, a precious time, and we see that raised up. I remember a number of occasions in California when we were serving in a Mandarin Chinese church. No, I don't speak Mandarin. Everybody asked me that after I mentioned that. It was second generation. But we were invited to a number of weddings. And on a few occasions, there was a, a place in Studio City nestled in the Hollywood Hills. It looked like a golden palace. And in every banquet, we were served with at least a 10-course meal from shark tail soup, scallops with honey walnuts, whole fish with their heads, Rusted, roasted duck, and on and on we could go. Every 30 minutes, the bride would present herself, or should I say represent herself, in a new dress. Clearly, the attention was not on the groom, unless you could say, um, by default, implication may be what he was getting, but it was definitely on the bride, and then the banquet, and then finally the setting. But in this psalm, in Psalm 45, the attention is clearly drawn to the king. If you look at Psalm 45, verse One, which would also include the title, by the way, is inscripturated, inspired, uh, to the choir master, according to Lilies, a mascal of the sons of Korah, a love song or a song that is lovely or beautiful. He writes this, the Holy Spirit writing through the pen of this poet, the sons of Korah, my heart overflows with the pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. It's a poem. The orator is drawing attention to the glory of the king, not the bride. In fact, we'll find that the bride's meaning and identity is found in the king. In fact, I'd like to preview that for you, verse 10 and 11. 
Hear, O daughter, and consider, and incline your ear. Forget your people and your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. The attention is drawn to the king. Abandon, leave, cleave to the king, and the king's beauty will become yours. The king will desire your beauty. The tension is all about the king here. And the tongue of the orator is viewed as a pen and a ready scribe to lift up and adore the glory of this king. Now we would call this a messianic psalm. A messianic psalm. What does that mean? Well, there are other messianic psalms like Psalm 22. It, it is a king in the Davidic dynasty, the line of David, who foreshadows the greater reality of the ultimate Davidic king, Christ. And we see this in such passages as Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. In fact, look with me first at verse 6 and 7. I want you to see the messianic nature of this, that this is lifted up pretty high to an ultimate reality. Psalm 45, verse 6 and 7. You've seen this before. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. You have loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. Your robes are all fragrant and will stop. I I go on to verse 8 because it's talking about this king. This king is ascribed deity. And look with me at Hebrews chapter 1. And again, you've seen it, and you've seen it here. Hebrews 1, 8, and 9. You also have sections from Psalm 110. The Hebrew writer in chapter 1, verse 2 says, In these last days he's spoken to us in his son. But verse 1 tells us, Before he spoke by the prophets. This would be a messianic psalm in which A king is being addressed in the line of David. We don't know who that is. We don't know if it's Solomon or David. Probably not because at the end of the psalm, he's seen uh, not the emphasis upon fathers, but his sons. And Solomon and David didn't have royal fathers, plural. So some have thought, well, it's someone else in the line of David. It's not mentioned. What is connected is the son. And we see in verse 8 of Hebrews 1, but of the son... He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. You've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. So clearly, there are eternal and divine characteristics given to this king that dwarfs any earthly king. Now, maybe we have a few examples of this in some of our literature. I think of the Wizard of Oz that many have ascribed as a a picture of the political and economic upheaval in the 1890s. If you read accounts of that, you'll find that uh, the the lion and the witch and the scarecrow all represent some political economic event. Now, it's obviously up to interpretation. We don't often think of that when we get into the drama of Wizard of Oz, the portrait that it's pointing to. This is bigger than that. This is no allegory. It's no metaphor. It's a historical event. But it's just kind of in the shadows. You see, God is the God of history, and he is moving history towards final purpose and the exaltation of his son, Jesus Christ. Why is that? Well, Genesis 1 tells us we're image bearers. We're meant to reflect him. We're told that Christ has stepped in our place and represented us. He's become like one of us. He's taken on humanity 
to identify with us as a brother of flesh and blood. And so while we deal with historical events and we need to treat this passage as such, we can't lose the lens of Christ, of which even this text underlines this king's deity and messianic saviorship. So our goal is to handle it in this context and to look at this king and adore this king and see the bride. But we can't just stop there. 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17 says that all scripture is given for us for doctrine, for teaching, for correction, for training in righteousness. Christ said the law, the prophets, and the Psalms, Luke 24, 43 through 44, are of him, testify of him. And he opened to the disciples these things to expound how they've pointed to Christ. We need help, no doubt, for some of these things. We don't necessarily open Psalm 45 and go, wow, this is talking about Jesus Christ. We know it's talking about God. We know Hebrews 1 helps with that lens. And so we endeavor to look to Christ. I pray that our hearts would also be excited, no doubt, at looking at the king, but also the coming kingdom. It encourages us to set our, our hopes upon eternity. This is an everlasting kingdom with everlasting righteousness. And maybe there's something we're grabbing onto or putting our roots down too deep and forgetting that we're just strangers and aliens passing through, living in light of the glory of a coming kingdom. And I pray that our hearts are enamored, as this poet is, with the glory of Christ. So that we would be drawn from sin, drawn from temptations, the allurements of our flesh and the world and of Satan, and drawn to look at Christ through his word. So we will look at four divine descriptions of the king that incite eternal praise. Four divine descriptions of the king that incite eternal praise. Where do you get the praise, you may ask? Well, in verse 17. And by the way, as we'll note, he moves on to the masculine first person or second person uh, your, your fathers shall be your sons. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. In other words, he's not talking about the bride. He's talking about the king and his name being remembered and praised by the nations, by all peoples forever. So this psalm is meant to produce in our hearts praise forever. Not limited to here and now, not limited to the fleeting moments of time and the little joys and blessings that we get in life, but it is eternal praise that is to awaken and excite in our hearts for eternity. And all the peoples will be joined together in it. And you say, how can that be? Because his throne is forever and ever, according to verse 6. Let's look at the first divine description of the king to incite eternal praise. The splendor of the king is the supreme man. The splendor of the king is the supreme man. And thank you, music team, for even introducing our songs of worship with songs that contemplate the splendor and beauty of our great king. It's so fitting to respond in such a way with praise. So again, look at verse 1 and 2. My heart is stirred, literally, or overflows with a pleasing theme. I address my verses to the king. My tongue is like the pen of a ready scribe. His heart is overflowing with thoughts and visions of this king as he sees the glory of this king presented before him in this wedding ceremony. His tongue is unleashed like a pen. He's ready to write song, verse. 
In verse 2, we see the splendor of this supreme man. You are the most handsome of the sons of men. Grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Fair, beauty, handsome is the word. It's used of Sarah in Genesis 12, 11, where Abraham's concerned about her beauty before Egypt. And he uses the word beautiful. Or Rachel, seen as more beautiful than Leah in Genesis 29, 17. Or David, seen as beautiful eyes in 1 Samuel 16, 12. Or Joseph, seen as beautiful, but in the context of masculinity, handsome. It's used over and over again in the Song of Solomon to describe the bride of Solomon as beautiful. And this is the word the Holy Spirit has chosen to adorn this king. Beautiful. Beautiful of the sons of men. What we see is beauty in verse 3. We see an outward beauty of splendor and majesty. We see it again in verse 4, majesty. We see uprightness in verse 6. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. We see an eternal or inward beauty or glory in verse 7 in that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. In verse 4, he comes out for the cause of truth and meek righteousness or humble righteousness. So we see his beauty magnified here. He's also described as the sons of, more beautiful than the sons of men. Sons of men is an idiom for humanity. He says the king's beauty is more, it's supreme, it's greater than the sons of men, than all of humanity. Daniel 7 employs sons of men as a messianic title, literally the representative of humanity or mankind. It's one who arises from humanity as a brother endowed with the human right to take dominion of the realm of mankind, to rule over mankind. Connecting the dots, we remember that Adam was entrusted with dominion over every living creature, and he sinned and rebelled against his stewardship. Christ is displayed as the second Adam, the Son of Man, who has taken that right. He's done so through his cross work, Romans 5 does. And in light of his cross work, Romans 8 says, he will unleash the curse that is upon this world and it will be freed. So he brings redemption and salvation and in that he will bring restoration as the Son of Man. Christ often called himself the Son of Man. We take up the New Testament lens here. In Mark 10, 45, he's the Son of Man who ransoms. Matthew 10, 23, the Son of Man who comes. Matthew 12, 8, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Matthew 13, 41, the Son of Man will send angels. And Matthew 16, 28, the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. It's not meant to keep track of all that. You could just look up Son of Man and find that for yourself. Look with me at Revelation 1.13. And we see this vision given to John, the apostle. And he introduces the glory and beauty of Christ in terms of verse 13 of chapter 1. He sees Christ as one like a son of man, clothed with a long robe and with a golden sash around his chest. In this messianic title, one like the Son of Man. And notice the beauty of this Son of Man in verse 14. The hairs of his head were white, 
like white wool, like snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet burnished bronze, refined in a furnace. His voice like the roar of many waters. Verse 16, in his right hand he held seven stars. From his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in full strength. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. But he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I'm the first and the last, the living one. I died. Behold, I'm alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. What is unique about Revelation 2 through 3, and in one sense I wanted to study this this morning, but Christ deals with seven churches, encouraging them in their sanctification and often confronting them in sin. And what he does is presents himself as this beautiful, glorious son of man, and he peels back to the characteristics of the glory of Christ presented in chapter 1. And if you had time to look at his rebuke or his, his commendation to Ephesus in light of their endurance and their need for rekindling their first love. He gives them a view of Christ holding the seven stars. To Smyrna, he's seen as the first and the last. And they're commended for their riches that they have in Christ. To Pergama, he's seen as one who holds a two-edged sword. He commends them for faithfulness, rebukes them for false teaching and clinging to it. Thyatara, they see a view of Christ whose eyes are like fire, whose feet are like burnished bronze. And he commends them for their love, faith, and their service, but calls upon them in light of tolerating immorality. And we could go on. The point is that in dealing with sin and in dealing with growth and sanctification, we must see the glory of Christ, particularly in the gospel. He's presenting himself as the one who's dead and is alive, the Redeemer. And in this text, Psalm 45, the poet, by the Holy Spirit, is enamored with the beauty of this Messiah, the Son of Man, the representative. But notice what he's particularly enamored with is the words of grace that come from the lips of the Messiah. You see, we could say, yeah, there's beauty, and we see the beauty of Christ, but where do we see it? We see it in, off of his, from his lips, from the word. And so in verse 2, he says, Grace, coming right out of the fair, the handsome of the sons of men, beautiful of the sons of men, grace is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. That picture is that of God's grace being poured out as ointment upon the lips of the king. So that what marks him is his words characterized by grace undeserved favor. Notice it's equated with God's blessing, eternal blessing. Therefore, God has blessed thee forever. Where do we see the beauty of this king? We see it in his words of grace. If you did a word study on grace, you'd find it's the word Hannah or Hannah. You get God's gift or gift of grace, gift of God. It's used of Noah who found favor or grace in Genesis 6-8. Moses entreats God. He desires to find favor and grace with God in Exodus 33-13. He says, show me your ways that I may know you in order to find grace or find favor. So this grace is connected with knowing God's ways, God's character. In Exodus 34-9, Moses says, if I found grace or favor... Pardon our iniquity and our sin. So not only is there a common grace that's undeserved, 
It's meted out by a king to his subjects, but there is a particular special grace given in the text of Scripture that's connected with salvation and pardon of iniquity and pardon of sin. Isaiah 54, describing the Lord Jesus, says, The Lord has given me the tongue of a disciple, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Grace. And that's in the midst of a context of Isaiah in which there's rebellion and sin, and the hope that is given is this promise of grace and salvation given by this great servant, Christ. Hebrews 11.3 tells us the universe was created by the word of God. Hebrews 1.3, the universe is upheld by the word of his power. And then we look at the gospel of John and we see that he who hears Christ's word and believes him has eternal life. And John 6.63, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. John 8.31, if you abide in my word, you will know the truth. The truth will set you free. John 10.27, my sheep hear my voice. I give them eternal life. Do we see the grace that comes from the lips of the king that bring life and pardon from iniquity? Some have called it a gospel grace that adorns the lips of the king. And the poet is so enamored with the beauty of the king, but what he draws our attention to is what comes from his lips in the midst of a dark, sin-cursed world. As we're going to see enemies of the king in verse 5. Enemies who are opposed to truth, meekness, and righteousness. We begin to realize, wait a minute, we too are part of this lot who are opposed to truth, meekness, and righteousness. We too are an enemy of the king. Oh, to hear the grace from the lips of the king. To hear of the glories of Christ. To hear of eternal blessing. To hear of one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness and wraps us up into himself. This is the New Testament lens allows us as believers to be encouraged. They say, well, how do we know that this is the Messiah, Jesus? Well, we noted the Son of Man, I think, is indicative. Verse 6 tells us this is referring to God. See, God the Father addressed in verse 7, Therefore God, your God, has anointed you. So dealing with Christ, we believe based on Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, Referring to God, anointing God. But I think it's helpful to know a little bit about the Old Testament. In Genesis 3.15, Eve and Adam are promised a seed who would crush the serpent's head. So we see that there is a substitute that will stand in the place of those who believe in this seed, who himself will take on the right to crush the serpent's head. We see in Abraham in Genesis twenty two seventeen that an offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. So Abraham's promised a seed. David is promised a seed in Psalm eighty nine, thirty one through thirty three, I believe it is, a promised a seed who will reign forever. In Genesis forty eight ten we find that this seed will be narrowed down from Abraham through through Isaac and Jacob and then Judah, who will be a royal seed. Isaiah helps us with this, and Isaiah 6 describes a a seed who will rise up from Israel, who will bring salvation, deliverance, and who will rule. It's helpful that the New Testament reaffirms what the Old Testament says. Galatians 3, 8 and 16, Paul says Abraham looked to Christ, the ultimate seed. 
So we're enamored with the seed. We join the Old Testament saints and we adore and trust in the promise of Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, I'm reminded of the prophets who searched the scriptures to see the sufferings of Christ in his glories. The sufferings of Christ in his glories. Even the text says in 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, that the angels long to look into these things. They long to see the beauty of the glory of Christ and his suffering. And so the prophets of old would join in and look to Christ. So between the Old Testament and the New We are made to sharpen our attention in the lens upon Christ Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of this psalm. There's a second divine description. Not only is he the supreme man, a representative and beautiful and glorious and characterized by the words of grace and therefore blessed forever. And so we find blessing in him, no doubt. No wonder the Old Testament, New Testament focus on being blessed in him. But in verse 3, we find that this king is a supreme judge, a supreme judge. Verse 3. Gird your sword on your thigh, O mighty one, in your splendor and majesty. In your majesty, ride out victoriously for the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. Let your right hand teach you awesome deeds. Your arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies. The peoples fall under you. We see the splendor of this king mentioned some three times as splendor, verse 3, majesty, verse 3, and verse 4, in your majesty. So now greatest strength and power are combined and joined with the highest beauty. Splendor describes an ornament or honor, glorious in appearance. Majesty is employed with context of greatness and power. It emphasizes glory. I'd like to show you a text that combines these words. If you turn with me to 1 Chronicles 29.11. 1 Chronicles 29.11 to see... Splendor and majesty used in the context of God's greatness and power. So when we see majesty and splendor, we're meant to see the exaltation of God, His riches, His glory, His strength. First Chronicles 29, 11, 12, and 13. David prays before the assembly. In verse 10, he says, Blessed are you, O Lord, the God of Israel, our Father, forever and ever. So, forever blessing. Pretty interesting connection. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty. For all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. Both riches and honor come from you, and you rule over all. In your hand are power and might, and in your hand it is to make great and to give strength to all. And what is that in sight? Well, we thank you, O God, and praise your glorious name. Glory, power, strength, honor, connected with majesty, splendor. It incites eternal praise. This is ascribed to this king. Psalm 45, verses 3 and 4. Gird your sword, the poet says, ultimately the spirit on your thigh, almighty one, in your splendor and majesty. So he comes as this victorious conqueror, clothed in the radiance of power and glory and majesty and strength. Where you will see the glory of God put on display is when he judges sin. 
when he deals with those who stand against the truth, who are not characterized by righteousness. That is why in the cross we see the glory of God unfurled before our eyes. For there we see God judging our sin upon his Son. It is there on the cross that we see the perfect righteous King who has stood in our place and obeyed for us. In this context, loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Where else would you see the glory of God put on display but in righteous judgment? And for you and I, believers, our hearts are stirred when we see the judgment that was kindled upon Christ. But one day it will be unleashed. When he returns, this king will come and ride out victoriously and unsheath his sword. And he will be exalted. And so as we find much hope in the promises of the one who loved righteousness and hated lawlessness for us, as Hebrews 1, 8, and 9, the reason I'm connecting that to the gospel is because Hebrews 1, 8, and 9 runs us into the one who declares salvation being the Lord and how dangerous it is to neglect that salvation. That's connected to the promise of Christ who loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Our hope of salvation is found in this very promise that his glory has been unfurled upon his son but it will one day be unfurled upon those who stand outside of Christ, unleashed. And it will still be victorious. Notice the description here. He defends, the king defends, what? Verse 4, the cause of truth and meekness and righteousness. It's interesting he picked these words. Because you say, how do we know righteousness? By looking at the truth. Christ is said in John 14, 6, as we look at the New Testament lens, I am the way, the truth, and the life. 1 Corinthians 1, 29-31, we look at the text and Paul says that our righteousness is found in him. He is our righteousness. It's a meek righteousness or humble righteousness, the Hebrew text underlines. These two words are joined together. It's describing one who submits to God's righteousness in a humble way, submitting to his truth. And Christ will march out one day for the cause of that truth and righteousness. And we start asking ourselves, whoa, whoa, where are we? Are we characterized by truth, meek righteousness? If we're not, his hands will teach awesome deeds and his arrows are sharp. They will be plunged in the heart of the king's enemies and the peoples will fall under you. Wow. Wow. Notice it's the king. No emphasis of the accompaniment of his soldiers to defend him. He girds the sword. He's the mighty one. He rides victoriously. His right hand teaches himself awesome things. His arrows are sharp. And the, fee- the people fall underneath you. It's all the king. What is he defending? Truth. Humble righteousness. Meekness. Righteousness. And so we ask, well, who is Righteous. Who is righteous? Well, Psalm 14.1 says, There is no one who does good. They have all turned aside together to become corrupt, verse 3 tells us. Deuteronomy 9 warns against those who say in their heart, Because of my righteousness. The Lord in dealing with Israel says, It is not for your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart. Where will we look to for righteousness? Well, I'm reminded of verse 10. Where the bride is exhorted to forget her people and her father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. 
while she's forgetting and abandoning her father's house, who's she turning to but the king? And where does she, what does she find in the king? Look with me at verse 6 through 9. Now we move on to the third description. The splendor of the king is supreme God. The splendor of the king is the supreme God. What does she find when she turns to this king? Verse 6, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of your kingdom is a scepter of uprightness. I love this. Verse 7, you have loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What is the character of this king? Well, yes, he's divine. Deity is ascribed to him. He shares God's throne for it endures forever. He shares God's righteousness for it is a scepter of uprightness. He shares God's essence for he has addressed God. He's anointed by God. He's God's divine representative. But the hallmark of this that brings such comfort to us in verse 7 is that he loved righteousness and hated wickedness. Therefore, he's been anointed with the oil of gladness. I have to take you back to Hebrews chapter 1. Hebrews 1. Remember the context of Hebrews is dealing with a false gospel. There's a danger of of Christians turning back to Judaism. Jesus plus the works of the law. So Hebrews underlines that the, the new covenant in Christ is superior and glorious. He's better than Moses. He's better than the angels. He's the creator of heavens and the earth. He's the Savior. And it's through Christ, Hebrews 1, 2 says, that God is spoken by His Son. Remember in verse 8, of the Son, He says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. Verse 9, you've loved righteousness, hated wickedness. Look with me at chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? What's he referring to? All that's gone before. God has spoken in his son. Mindful of the context of Hebrews, this gospel promise, the new covenant. It was declared at first by the Lord. What's so dangerous? God has declared salvation in Christ. And if we neglect this great salvation in Christ, we will not escape. But that's connected with Hebrews 1 on the character of this perfect Savior who loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. And this, brothers and sisters, brings me great hope. Because every time I sin, when I grumble and complain, and I am unfaithful, I'm reminded that I love lawlessness and hate righteousness in the depths of my heart. Psalm 14 says that. There is no one who does good, not even one. But Christ Jesus came and offers a great salvation and is characterized by loving righteousness and hating lawlessness. So that every deed, every thought, all that he did that led him to the point of death on the cross was to love righteousness perfectly. And this is offered as the glorious salvation. We need one who loved righteousness and hated wickedness. This bride looking to this king, finds her identity in the king. We're reminded with the New Testament lens to find our identity in Christ, to deny self, take up the cross, to follow him. Must lose our life to gain our life in Christ. This is glorious. He loved righteousness, hated wickedness because he is the glorious God. The glorious
This leads us to number four. How does one find God? The splendor of the king is the supreme husband. The supreme husband. Oh, we're at a wedding, aren't we? Yes. He just went off on judgment, deity, loving righteousness, hated wickedness. Notice the joy that floods out of the end of verse 7 with the oil of gladness beyond your companions. What do we find in this glorious Messiah King? Joy. Great joy. Sin will steal our joy. Christ gives joy. There's no competitors of the joy that comes in Jesus Christ. We know that because He is the beautiful Son of Man, our representative. We know that because... He is the judge. We know that because he is divine. He's God. And we know that because, fourthly, he is the supreme husband. Look with me at verse 9. The daughters of kings are among your ladies of honor. At your right hand stands the queen in gold of Ophir. So now we're drawn back to the accompaniment, to the marriage ceremony. And his right hand stands the queen. And among the accompaniment are the ladies of honor representing her. Verse 10, hear, O daughter, consider and incline your ear. Forget your people in your father's house, and the king will desire your beauty. Since he is your Lord, bow to him. The people of Tyre will seek your favor with gifts, the richest of the people. So here's the connection. Listen, daughter, incline your ear. Leave your family. Cling to the king. Oh, and who is this king? The beautiful son of man, the righteous judge, God. Cling to him. Bow to him, and he will desire your beauty. The people of Tyre, verse 12, will seek your face, the word means, or favor, with gifts, the richest of the people, so that the people of the world will come through the bride to meet the king. Notice verse 13. All glorious is the princess in her chamber with robes and her twelven with gold. In many colored robes she is led to the king with her virgin companions following behind her. Often in ancient Near East weddings or the weddings or the parables that Christ speaks of, the woman and her companions, the bride and her companions, the bride-to-be would gather at the groom's house while the groom would be off with his groom's men preparing for the night and then they would come marching up unexpectedly. You could see the, the lights moving through the dark streets. People would gather the rooftops to watch the procession. But not in this case. In this case, she's being brought to the king's palace. Again, the king is the emphasis here. Notice as she's led to the king in verse 14 with her virgin companions following behind her. Notice again with joy and gladness they're led along. Remember, because he loved righteousness, hated lawlessness, he was anointed with the oil of gladness, raised up, exalted. Can't help but think of New Testament lens of Christ who's given a name above every name who is exalted. And so in the exaltation of the king, there is great joy and gladness. Look at verse 16 and 17. In place of your fathers, again, that's masculine, turning back to the king, shall be your sons. That's why we throw out David and Solomon. Where would you have plural royal fathers? But again, the text is moving us forward. You will make them princes in all the earth. I will cause your name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore, nations will praise you forever and ever. Inciting eternal praise. Don Benedito, 
an Italian reformer, observes this relationship between union with Christ and marriage. And he says this, The husband speaks of the wife's dowry as his, while the wife calls the husband's house and all his riches hers. Now God has married his only begotten son and dear beloved son to the faithful soul. The result is that Christ has full possession of the believer's peculiar dowry, namely sin. The dowry comprises her sins and transgressions of the law, God's wrath against her, the boldness of the devil over her, the prison of hell and all other evils. The other side of this coin, of course, is that the wife of Christ receives his holiness, his innocency, his righteousness, and his Godhead together with all his virtue and might. In this messianic psalm, the poet is amazed to see the bride abandoning life, home, culture to find identity in the king. The king desires her. How so? Because of what the king brings to the table. All the glorious assets. And who's praised? He's praised by all peoples and all generations forever and ever. Do you see the splendor of the king? Do you see him as the supreme man, as your representative? Do you see him as the supreme judge? In one moment we coil and go, whoa, that's some harsh language. He will unfurl his arrow against his enemies, plunge it into his enemy's heart. Do you see him as the supreme God and therefore he has the right to judge in righteousness? But as the supreme God, he also became the supreme husband. And so we don't have to fear his judgment because Christ loved righteousness, hated lawlessness, and he took the tip of the arrow for us. He took the wrath that we deserve. And he united us with himself. As Ephesians 5 uses the same pictures in a marriage covenant, in a new covenant in which we get all of Christ's assets, as Benedito said, and he has taken our liabilities, our guilt, our suffering, and we give him great praise. Lord, we thank you for psalms like these. We pray we'd understand the context better, even as the, the poet is amazed at the beauty of this king. But we're kind of lost to know who is this king, and yet we remember that it is meant to run us Ford, it's a messianic royal psalm. We thank you for so many parables in the New Testament that depict this marriage relationship. A marriage relationship in which you will save your people, Israel. All Israel will be saved. You've also described the church in a marriage relationship with Jesus Christ. And so we want to adore Christ as our husband and be reminded of 2 Corinthians 11, 2 that we be presented to Christ as a pure virgin. It's amazing how you've described even our salvation in terms of marriage and engagement as a legal declaration. And so we have been justified in Christ legally. And yet we wait for consummation and glory where we be joined with him and we rejoice in our bride or our groom as a bride. Lord, guard us against sin. It tempts us by saying, here's our identity, here's our love. Show us Christ again and again through the gracious lips of your Son who speaks the truth in the Word, the Word that gives life. We ask these things in Christ's name.